Secondly, Jesus is divine, but not equal in divinity with the Father. True or false? Jesus is two persons, a divine person and a human person in one. True or false? Jesus has two natures which are mixed together to form one nature. True or false? Jesus had a human body but a divine mind. True or false? Jesus is fully God. True or false? Jesus Christ is fully man. True or false? And then you get a multiple choice, which is always challenging. Which of these four is an accurate statement of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity? There are three true gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different aspects or persons of the one true God. The Son and the Holy Spirit are the servants of of God the Father. And lastly, the Son is the servant of God the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the servant of the Son. Okay. Now I'm going to give you the answers, and then I'm actually going to hand out the answer sheet, so you can do your own study later, because this would, it would take us another hour to go through every one of these. All right. Number one, true or false? False. False. This is actually the heresy that uh, was found in the first century called Doceticism, against which um, the entire Nicene Creed was born out of. Uh, hmm? Doceticism. Yeah. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M which comes from the Greek word meaning to seem or to appear. Number two, Jesus is divine but not equal in divinity with the Father. True or false? That is also false. That's Jehovah Witnesses. It's also known as Arianism. Three, Jesus is two persons, a divine person and a human person in one. True or false? That is also false. That is another heresy known as Nestorianism. I'm, yes, you'll have, you will get a test next week and you'll be graded. And, and, and uh, we, will, we will post the results in the church newsletter by name. Anyway, number four, true or false? He had two natures which are mixed together to form one nature. <clears throat> that is also false. Number five, Jesus had a human body, but he had divine mind. False. Number six, Jesus Christ was fully God. True. Thank you. That was a resounding true. But number seven is also true. So it's both and one at the same time, which makes it a challenge for most people. Here the hand up. Here. It sounds like number four still, though, right? Yes, it sounds like it, but it isn't. 
And that's the challenge you hear when you hear someone make a claim about Jesus and it's just off. But it sounds right. And in the multiple choice question, number eight, the correct answer is B. A, C, and D are all incorrect. So I'm going to have you do another handout here, which is the answers to all these lovely questions. And you might say, okay, Steve, that was boring. Um, and more theological than I really wanted to know today. But let me just, I don't know how else to put it. If you don't have an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, your entire faith will fall apart. It is the foundation upon which everything in Scripture is based. We were just having a conversation with someone after church, and it's been interesting that the question of who is Jesus has been rattled around for the entirety of our modern era. If you want to call it modern, all the way 2,000 years. Every possible alternative to Jesus being fully God and fully man have been brought up and then defended loudly, sometimes violently, throughout history. So rather than doing a handout, I'm going to ask, I'm going to read you a couple things and I'm going to ask you what group is teaching this today? Hi, I'm going to tell you who Jesus was. He was the firstborn child of Elohim. He's the product of the physical union between the Father God and the Virgin Mary. And please don't look shocked. For a time, God and Mary were actually husband and wife. And they had sexual relations, as any marital couple would have, and they conceived Jesus. And the good news is if we work hard enough, we too can become sons of God in the same sense that Jesus is. Who's teaching them? Yeah, it's the Latter-day Saints. This is their perspective of Jesus Christ. And you might go, well, that, but they're Christian light. No, they're Christian wrong. Because their understanding of who Jesus is, is very different than the scriptures. And you have to be very careful. You can get into some rather, let's just say, aggressive conversations, but it ultimately comes down with, who is Jesus? All right, here's another group. Jesus is just like Abraham, Moses, and Isaiah. He was a prophet of God. But he himself is not God. In fact, he wasn't even the most important of the prophets. There was another one who lived 500 years after, and he's the greatest prophet. You've already picked up on it. Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He was rescued by God and carried to a safe place in the heavens. And since there is no death, there was no atonement for sin. And since there is no death, there is no resurrection either. And that's in the Quran. And you might go, it is? Yes. I have two copies of the Quran in my library. One is published by the Islamic Society. 
It's a brand new translation, so kind of a, think of it as the, uh, um, the New Living Translation of the English Bible. It's the new version of the Quran. I also have a study Bible published by a Christian publisher with study notes throughout it pointing to the Quran pieces and saying, this is what it's teaching and this is what the Bible says. And you can just go there and you go, whoa, what a resource, but we're ignorant. Isn't it a little scary we take our theology from NBC? Or CNN? How about this one? Prior to his coming to earth, Jesus was Michael, the archangel. He's only a creature, the first product of Jehovah's God's, Jehovah God's creative work. When he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was divested of his spiritual angelic nature and became holy and exclusively a man. Jesus is not God. Jehovah's Witnesses. A very common uh, statement. In fact, if, see if I can remember this correctly. Their translation of John 1.1 1, 1 in the beginning. Let's see. My mind just went. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. That's their translation. A God. Just pick up one of the New World translations you can find at any thrift store. Or ask for one. You'll get one for free. But you really go, wait. That's a different letter. That, that's a different word. That changes the whole meaning. Mm -hmm. Right? Is that Jehovah's Witness? That's Jehovah's Witnesses, yes. And, yeah. And you know how they always come to your door. And so, this is several years ago, a woman and her daughter came, and so I had a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And we got to the Holy Spirit. And she said, well, uh, I don't know anything about She said, I'll come back on another day. <laughs> Yeah. They never showed up. Yeah. Well, an author I've worked with for many years, he wrote a book on the Trinity called The Forgotten Trinity. Because as Christians, we don't remember why the Trinity is important until a Jehovah Witness comes to our door, and then we can't remember why it's important. And so we need to understand these theological statements because entire non-Christian beliefs are founded and then we stand there and go, um, well, sounds right. Maybe I need to believe you. How about this one? Common sense tells us that Jesus was the natural born son of Mary and Joseph. No different at birth than anyone else. Don't get me wrong, I'm not an atheist. In fact, because of his exceptional virtue and humility and spiritual sensitivity, God adopted Jesus to be his son. He then endowed him with miraculous powers and through him proclaimed the wonderful message of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Now you might go, I don't know, and there isn't a specific, let's just call it progressive liberal churches. Anything except Jesus as Lord. Anything except that. Or how about this group? Hey, I always thought Jesus was a good old boy who told us to love everybody and be nice. It's too bad he got, uh, got killed like that. Mm. Well, as long as we all believe in the existence of God, does it really matter that much? Can't we just get along? Who says that? 
your neighbor. <laughs> and as again, we were talking, it's with someone here earlier, um, right after church, and I, I used that statement. I said, you know, your neighbor, he goes, actually it was my seatmate on an airplane Tuesday. <laughs> Went, really? He said, yeah, the person said to me, oh, I believe Jesus is a God, but so is Buddha. And so is Muhammad. And can't we just get along? Aren't we all just the same? No, we're not. The beliefs are not the same. I'm not going to read this whole portion, but I will just read the first section and see if you can recognize this group. It'll be the last one, I swear, and then we'll get to the text. We all, with one voice, teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, of one essence with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same of one essence with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards to his divinity, and in the last days for us and for our salvation, the same born of Mary, the virgin God-bearer as regards his, to his humanity. Does that, anybody recognize that? It's the Creed of Chalcedon from 451, where the church came together and had to define who is Jesus. That statement is the one that all of us in this room should embrace because it defines Jesus as fully God and fully man. So, with all that... Well, prior to the Reformation, Reformation, if you were a Christian, you were a Catholic. Right. So, that had nothing to do with it. It's just an early church statement. Because they were dealing with the heresy of Jesus as not being fully divine. Yeah. So you have the Council of Nicene the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Athanasius. So you have the, these various creeds. Look in the back of your hymnal in the, in the church sanctuary. You'll find these creeds. And we occasionally will recite them during the service. Many years ago, I taught a class during Christmas on the Nicene Creed because we started to recite it in the service. And I asked, why do we do that? Why the Nicene Creed? Because it's nice? Yeah, it is nice, but it's truth based on Scripture to account for <clears throat> the heresies that are out there. So let's turn to our text. First, first chapter of Colossians, verses 15 to 20. This is one of the most extraordinary, beautiful, expansive expressions of who Jesus is in all of Scripture. For those of you who are here five and a half some odd years ago when Pastor Jim was candidating, when he came to the church, the, the sermon he gave to the congregation was this text. And we all just, our jaws were open. He expounded it in such a glorious way. It's a text that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I'm a little afraid to even try to teach. Because all we need to do is read it and just go home. 
Because it's all here. So let's read it together. Since you have all that you all have the text in front of you. Let's read it together so we know what we're reading and what we're studying this morning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now let's go home. I mean, that's it. That Read it over and over and over again. Memorize this passage. If you want to know who Jesus is, it's right here. And you might think, well, why is Paul writing this? I mean, everything he writes through the inspiration of the scripture is done for a purpose and a reason and as we work our way through Colossians we will find that there is a faction within that church that taught something different and so Paul at the beginning of the letter before he addresses the issue specifically He lays out this glorious presentation of who Jesus is. And the thing is, this is what's so interesting. If you present God glorified in this manner, he's kind of hard to resist. There's a story of Dwight L. Moody back in the days of the Chicago World Fair. So that was, what, 1897, something like that. And this was less than 20 years after the Chicago fire that destroyed the whole city. They've rebuilt the city. They put together the Chicago fair and they're bringing people and things from all over the world. Now imagine 1897, there are no airplanes and there are no cars. 20 million people showed up to come to this fair. In other words, it wasn't just the population of Chicago. They came from all over the world. There was a tent set up, and it was called the Parliament of Religions. So you had Hindu, Buddhism, all the world religions were in there, But there was a separate tent put up by Dwight L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute, famous evangelist of the time. And people told him, what you need to do is attack the Parliament of Religions tent in your sermons. You need to go out there and just decimate them. And he said, no, I am going to preach Christ glorified and crucified for us and talk about the greatness of who he is and what he has done. 
And it was the most successful campaign and crusade in Dwight Moody's entire career. He didn't have to go out and attack. He just had to go out and say, look at this. When there's a dark room, all you have to do is strike a match and you will change the nature of what is seen in the room. A little bit of light will change everything. So it's okay. I mean, there's a place for apologetics. I represent a lot of apologetic authors in my, in my, my career. And there's an important way of needing to know your doctrine and be able to defend it at the same time. Present Christ of who he is and what he's done. And look at this. It says, what does it say about him? It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Well, right away you go, image. Oh, didn't you just say it was God and man? And isn't our image not the real thing? How would you answer that? thing is, throughout Scripture, you cannot ever pull one verse out and then say, see, everything else is wrong. You have to look at the totality of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all, with unveiled face, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the light of the gospel is the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He's not saying he's a reflection. You see, the thing about an image is it has three meanings. It can be able to be a likeness, but it also can be a representation, and it can also be a manifestation. So Christ manifests the image of God in him to us so that we can see God because otherwise you don't know what God looks like. You have no idea. Scripture is very clear. You're never going to see God not until the end of time. But through Christ you can see him. You have to be careful. You don't separate the divinity of Christ from his humanity when you see a word like image. Be very careful with that. In fact, I'm going to flip over in my Bible to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I'll read it. You put it in your notes and you can read it for yourself later. In fact, put it in the margin of your notes of first, in first chapter of Colossians, because it's a parallel. Hebrews reads, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There is no question 
Jesus is God. We cannot break it up. It says here, the other half of verse, uh, verse 15, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Oh, that lovely word, firstborn. That's what the entire Council of Chalcedon was wrapped around. Because there were people who were saying, well, if he was firstborn, that means Jesus was created. He was born first. All right. Um, I know you've all studied this, so I'm going to ask, is anybody here would like to comment on that? How would you reply to it? Because it says firstborn. He's the firstborn of all creation. How do you counter that statement? Yeah. I would say firstborn in a sense isn't referring to a physical being born since the Trinity has been around for all of eternity. I think firstborn in this sense is referring to a position of preeminence. Good. Usually, especially in the Old Testament Jewish and Hebrew culture, the firstborn was the one who inherited everything from the Father. Correct. And you use the word preeminence, which is probably one of the keys to this whole thing. In fact, your Bible probably has a header, the preeminence of Christ. In your Bible, probably that's the t- kind of the title for this section. David, King David, is called the firstborn. It's in Psalm 89:27. It says, "I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth." All right. Was David the firstborn? No, he was the youngest of the sons. Was he the first king? He wasn't even the first king. Saul was. So how could the psalmist write about David as firstborn? As he mentioned, it's a position statement, a term of rank or a term of authority. So if you have someone saying, well, it says right here, In fact, the Jehovah Witnesses will use this passage in their arguments that Jesus is not God, that he was a created being. You have to think and respond, saying, well, in other places in Scripture, the word firstborn does not necessarily mean the first child born from a woman. It is a position of rank. It's just one of the... Weaknesses of English language, or Hebrew language for that matter, human language. How else do you describe it? There are those who have said, we wish Paul would have used the word preeminent. (laughs) That he was the preeminent of all creation. And then we would have had arguments about what that meant. So, okay. Has to be somebody, something we all argue about. We move to verse 16. Now, before we do that, as you have the text in front of you, do a little speed read and circle every time you see the word all. See at the end of line one, 
middle of line three, also in line four twice. Line six in verse 19 and in verse 20, six times in five verses. You also have the word everything in the last part of verse 18. So seven times in this passage, Paul is very specifically talking about the totality of Christ's involvement in creation and in everything in the very fabric of the universe. There's no better word to describe it other than all, everything. And it's done seven times. This is intentional. Now, you might say, well, what about this chart I'm looking at at the bottom of my handout? Well, that chart um, is for your benefit. It comes from William Hendrickson's commentary on Colossians. There is a, a, a large group of scholars that believe that verses 15 to 20 is actually an old hymn. It was actually a hymn of the church. And it was actually sung. And what Paul was doing was quoting the lyrics. Now he doesn't frame it that way. Uh, so that's where there's those who say, well, it's not really a hymn. It doesn't rhyme. <laughs> yeah. yeah, tell me whether it rhymes in Greek. And then you got an argument. Um, but there's an intentionality of its structure. And when you put the two parallels beside each other, you can see things like he is, or in him, or by him, and all things. You see this intentional um, framing of the language to, ca- to uh, capture and elaborate on the other idea. So I'm not saying it definitively it was a hymn. It feels like it, kind of like Philippians 2, 1 through 6, feels like a hymn also, but it's not like the hymns we sing. I think music has changed a little. What do you think? Um, the hymns we sing in our hymnal are very different from the hymns or choruses that are sung in uh, contemporary services. There's still some good lyrics in both. It's just a different style and different way of presenting it. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Okay, so now we got to saying, what is, what is he talking about? Well, there is a philosophy that was in its fledgling... Um, well, that's kind of, I'm now saying redundant words. A fledgling beginning. Um, it was just starting. The idea of Gnosticism was just starting to take hold. There are those who will say that Colossians was written as a counter to the Gnostic heresy. You may have heard that before if you study Colossians. Problem was, full-blown Gnosticism did not flower for another 200 years. So this is 
an attempt to circumvent the beginnings or the preliminary thinking that was starting to show up throughout the Roman Empire. This thinking, and I'll just read it because it's easier than me trying to teach it. So many smarter people than me who've written this all out. This idea of Gnosticism, coming from the Greek word to know, gnosis, held the basic doctrine that physical or created matter was evil and that only the spirit was good. So in other words, flesh is bad, the ineffable spirit is good. So everything that we have and we see and touch and feel is bad. You'll see that over in Colossians chapter 2 where it talks about asceticism, which is the idea of uh, either cutting or whipping or doing things to the body or withholding things from the body to try to keep the flesh at bay because the spirit is good. They reasoned that God could not be involved in creation because being perfect, he could not touch matter, which is evil. Therefore, the world came into being through a complicated process. Now, this is very creative, so just bear with me here. A very creative process is God put forth thousands of emanations or lesser gods, each one a little more distant from God, so that finally there was a little God so distant from God that it could actually touch matter and create the world. Of course, this lesser God of creation was so far removed from the ultimate God that itself was evil because it could touch. Touch matter. This reasoning led to the belief that Jesus Christ, if he really was the Son of God, could not have taken on a human body because matter is evil. And this delusion spawned the lie that Jesus was a ghost-like phantom. He was not a creator, the incarnation is not real, and Christ was not enough. So they built a system by which one could begin with Christ and work their way up through a series of emanations back up to God. So Paul's hearing this and going, what? Jesus is fully God. He was there at creation. He created all things. So he says, by him all things are created. Just full bore right into the teeth of this teaching. In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. There's two things here. One, notice he's acknowledging the supernatural world. Thrones, well, we can see the throne, and there was a TV show called The Game of Thrones, but dominions, well, that's the supernatural. So you have the physical and the supernatural. 
Rulers, okay, we have rulers. Uh, authorities, well, we have principalities and powers that are spoken of later and in other passages. But when you think about Jesus as there at creation, if you want to spend some time um, worshiping, worshiping Jesus, worshiping God, worshiping the Spirit, just think a little bit about creation itself and the wonder of what the world we live in. Comets have vapor trails that are 10,000 miles long. So just imagine that for a second. It's 3,000 miles approximately from LA to New York. So three times that. So what would be 10,000 miles from LA? A long ways. Okay, so just, you got that. If you captured all of that vapor and put it into a bottle, it would take less than one cubic inch of space. It's, it's out there. You, they can see the comet trails, but it's infinitesimal in size, but it's 10,000 miles long. <sighs> no way. Saturn's rings are one half billion miles in diameter. Billion with a B. And it's one foot thick. No. Yes. The star Antares is, <clears throat> is 60,000 times larger than our sun. <clears throat> so if our sun, <clears throat> excuse me, if our sun is the size of a softball, Antares is the size of the house in which the softball sits. 60,000 times. We all know now, because we're so smart and are so educated, maybe actually it's a better word as edumacated, that the earth travels around the sun. How fast does it go? Is there a little speedometer on the North Pole? <laughs> this little elf driving it. Um, it's eight times the speed of a bullet. That's how fast we're traveling right now. So if you shoot a bullet, technically it actually ends up behind you. <laughs> because you're going faster around the sun. Well, well, we'll talk about physics some other day. <clears throat> and this will make you all warm and cuddly and just feel just marvelously wonderful and thinking of puppies. There are more insects in one square mile of rural land than there are human beings in the entire world. Say that again, please. Go out into a field, out in the rural land, one square mile. There are more insects in that square mile than there are human beings. I believe that in my kitchen. You believe because of your kitchen. Okay. Yeah, they've invaded your kitchen. I mean, that's extraordinary. Or how about this? And you, again, you may have known this. You might have seen some 
National Geographic's Discovery Channel documentary that bees make their own air conditioning. It's particularly true in Arizona. <clears throat> when it starts getting too hot, the wax begins to melt inside the hive. And you guys were beekeepers for quite a while, so you know this. To solve that, that problem, a group of bees goes to the front, to the opening of the hive, and starts flapping their wings, creating an air current. And then another group is on the inside, flapping their wings to create a current to cool the interior of the hive. Jesus did that. We have no concept. I could go on. I mean, I've got a whole page full of this stuff. And it's just extraordinary to think that the God of the universe cares about you. Every one of you. We don't deserve it. Yeah, I got that right. I don't deserve it, yet he cares for us. By him, all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or all things created by were created through him and for him. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, that goes into the pre-existence of Christ. That before creation was even contemplated, if we think of that in terms of eternity. That's kind of hard to figure out. But before it even began, he was there because he's fully God. And what I love about this passage is you start thinking about he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Huh. Well, you can look backward and you can also look forward using this verse. Because before it all began, he was there. And after it's all over, he's there. And he's there now. Right now. And in Christ, all things hold together. There are times where I suspect at some point in our lives, we have all gotten to the point of thinking that it's all going to fall apart. It's no longer working. It, there's a lot of unhappiness around me. Um, death, destruction, illness, relationships, jobs, money, pandemics, whatever. You know, they, they, there are constant studies now coming about the, the loneliness of the pandemic is now showing its fruit. And you look at all this and you think, oh, there's no hope. And then you read a verse like this. In him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the power of his word. And if you think about it in another way, the fact that he's before all things, he created all things, it's done through him and for him, and in him all things hold together, there's no other way to look at our universe and who we are and what we are 
other than Christ-centric. And if you remove Christ from the center, the center will not hold. Take a, um, a spinning disk, some metal disk, let's I'll call it a hard drive. You know, those little guys inside that box, are, this disk is spinning around in there. Take it a little out of alignment. What happens to the disk? And the next thing you know, it blows up. The center cannot hold if it's out of alignment. But in Christ, it all holds together eternally. It doesn't wear out. So Athanasius of Alexandria wrote this around 360 AD. So that's what, 1600 years ago? It's all right. We're, we're all listening. <laughs> this technology, your Bible starts preaching to you. <laughs> Yes, the center has just fallen apart. This is why you carry one of these. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I can tease an old friend. Oh. Athanasius of Alexandria. Athanasius was at the Council of Nicaea. He was there. He was the assistant to the Bishop of Alexandria at the time. And so he had influence in the Nicene Creed, which we quote from. But he became one of the most powerful early church fathers. He was fighting the heresies of the church, of the church, regarding Jesus. He was excommunicated by the church five times. They called him the bull because he refused to give up. And he was extraordinarily scriptural, theologically sound, but the church around him was not. He wrote this about Christ. Christ, the all-powerful, all-holy word of the Father, spreads his power over all things everywhere, enlightening things seen and unseen, holding and binding them all together in himself. Nothing is left empty of his presence, but to all things and through all, severally and collectively, he is the giver and sustainer of life. He, the wisdom of God, holds the universe in tune together. He, it is who, binding with each and ordering all things by his will and pleasure, produces the perfect unity of nature and the harmonious reign of law. While he abides unmoved forever with the Father, he yet moves all things by his own appointment according to the Father's will. May we have that clarity of understanding of who Christ is.
Paul goes on, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Huh. So he brings the church into this formula, into this conversation. Why? Why would Paul bring up the church in the midst of this statement about Jesus? I mean, there's a fellow I know who has not been to church for 40 years. He believes the church is a human construct and is full of idiots. <laughs> but he is a believer. He believes Jesus Christ crucified. He just had wants nothing to do with Christians. He's also not a very happy man, but that's another statement. That's a, more of a personality quirk. Um, is he right? Yes, he's full of idiots, but God died for us idiots. Exactly. Christ died for us idiots. Exactly. If you're looking for the perfect church full of perfect people, it ain't going to happen. The church is made for sinners. You know, I imagine if we were to um, stop our time right now and have each of us come up here and talk for a few minutes of our less than savory actions and activities in our past, we would be here for the next six weeks and have something called church. Because that's what Christ died for our sins, to wipe that away, to give us hope, and if you think, or anybody says, well, I don't really need the church. Yes, you do. Christ is the head of that body, the church. The church is mentioned a couple more times in Colossians. It's, it's mentioned nine times in Ephesians. There's no question of the necessity of a body of believers coming together with Christ at the head, and then it's all sharing together and building each other. But then he comes along and he adds, he's the beginning. Oh, there's the word firstborn again. Hooray. Firstborn of the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent, to use the word that was brought up earlier. So firstborn of the dead. Well, is that a statement of authority? Or rank because it was before. Is that the same? Does that have a different meaning now? This is a meaning it has in Revelations one. Hmm? It's a meaning it has in Revelations one five. Correct. <clears throat> in Revelation one five, it has that same meaning. He's the firstborn of the resurrection because he's the only one who's ever been resurrected in glory. That's what he's talking about. It's not that he was birthed. That's kind of weird. It's a, I don't know, a flowery word, I guess, for lack of a better statement, to express the position of Christ as, a, in the, uh, as the person who has been raised from the dead. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell... Remember, the Gnostics saw Christ as a step, one of many steps on the way to God. 
and he's saying, no, 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 no. He's not a, <clears throat> he's not the halfway house. He's everything. The fullness of God is there. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now guess what? There's even controversy in this verse. Through him to reconcile to himself all things. In other words, everyone's going to be saved. Those who believe or teach universal salvation, that there is no condemnation for sin, there's no hell, point at that verse. And they say, see, he's saying he's reconciling all things. Wow. You guys didn't read any of the other rest of the Bible, did you? You just plucked one verse out. By the way, I own a lot of heretical Bibles because it's part of my research. And one of them is called the Skeptic's Bible. And it's an actual study Bible written by atheists. It's a King James Bible with study notes. It's such a lovely experience to, to get into. You're like, whoa. And they pick at everything. And they will look at something like this. Now, they don't believe in any salvation at all. <clears throat> but they will say, well, the, vi- the idea that people are going to go to hell and are going to be condemned for their sins. See, right here. Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself. That's not what it means. It's talking about his universal sovereignty over all things. Not a specific action. It doesn't say he's going to reconcile all things to himself. He's talking about the sovereignty over all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's gift to us. Now there was a story many years ago of an author named F.B. Meyer who was visiting a woman's home who was not understanding the nature of the gift of the gospel. And he would present it and she was just like, I just don't, I just don't get it. I don't understand it how this works. And then he finally said, well, ma'am, can I have a cup of tea? She goes, sure. So she runs over, you know, good British home, always has tea, brings out the cup of tea, places it in front of F.B. Meyer, and he doesn't receive it. He just looks at it. About 10 minutes later, he said, ma'am, could I, could I have a cup of tea? She goes, well, it's, it's right there. And I said, oh, okay, and he just went on. About ten minutes later, he says, um, "Ma'am, could I have another? Could, not, not another. Could I have a cup of tea?" She's getting a little annoyed with him now, saying, "It's right there." And he looked up at her knowingly. She goes, "Oh, all I have to do is receive it. It's a gift." <gasps> and she read right there. She got it. You can have the gospel in front of you. You can even be sitting in here and think you have an understanding. But if you don't receive it and take it in, 
It doesn't have any effect. It becomes an intellectual exercise. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite authors from the past. He got his doctorate in theology at the age of 19 or 20 and became a Christian afterwards. Doctorate in theology and was not a Christian. How is that possible? Because it was an intellectual exercise in philosophy and theological exploration. It was about five years later when it struck him, and that's when he wrote his book, Cost of Discipleship. The idea of coming to an understanding of what it truly means to be a disciple was not an intellectual exercise for this young man. So as we look at this passage, you can go back over it. Maybe there's something you can do as one in with some of your own meditations, or your own quiet time. Look again at these five verses and look at the prepositions. I wrote a few of them down at the bottom of the page for you. And praise God for prepositions. Because you have is, by, through, in, before. And think of it by him, through him, and for him. All of creation. It's for his glory, through his power. And yet, we're moving into the Christmas season. Friday is December 1st, the first day of Advent. So next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. And there's a, well, you know, very common <coughs> word, Emmanuel. What does that mean? Yes. Oh, there's a preposition in there. With. God with us. God for us. God in us. By him, through him, and for him, God is with us, for us, and in us. Prepositions. That, wow. Who would have thought these throwaway words would have so much power? But they're all through this passage. And just look at them and meditate upon them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for looking at this extraordinary passage. We could probably come back to it again next week and study it again and find even more. And that's the beauty of your word. It's so full. It's, it's more than we can imagine. It is so hard to comprehend and collect and then hold in such a way that we understand it. But thank you for the opportunity to do that and for what we've learned here today. Bless us as we go into our week. In Jesus' name, amen.